Amen. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 7 and 8. Proverbs 1, uh, 7, 8, uh, and 9, actually. So uh, if you're new here, welcome. We're glad you're here. My name is Jamin Roller. I am uh, one of the pastors here at what is becoming Citizens Church. And so uh, I get to do this uh, here in preaching uh, often, and so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, we are going to break from uh, the series that we're in in the Gospel of John, and we're going to go to Proverbs, and we are going to talk uh, about like a, a biblical ideal for motherhood, and that largely is because it is Mother's Day. So let me tell you, before we, we get there, before we dive in, let me, let me tell you kind of how we got there, the why behind it. Uh, there are really um, a couple of presses that I feel uh, that have me, uh, as um, you know, the lead teaching pastor here, that has me wanting to speak to certain things often. Uh, and most of those grow from presses that grow from who we are uniquely as a church. And so I'm doing uh, that this morning, kind of in response to, to these two presses that I've felt. Uh, let me give you the first one. The first one is just, who we are as a church and who we've always been, there's a, a thread throughout us that's not true for everybody, but that is true for a lot of us, and that's this. There are many, many that belong here who are first-generation Christians, meaning they did not grow up in a Christian home, or maybe they grew up in a home that identified as Christian, but Jesus was more of a social thing, not like an everyday engagement kind of thing. And so that first came to my attention. I left uh, Flower Mound to come on staff in Plano when we were first starting the campus, uh, and I came on as the group's uh, pastor uh, and also as the student minister, uh, but I didn't know that part until after I'd already taken the job. So that was, uh, that was shady. Anyway, uh, the first 90 days of starting the campus, my goal was to meet with every group leader we had and as many members as I could. And what I loved doing was sitting across from breakfast or sitting across from coffee or sitting across uh, from the dinner table and just saying, tell me about you and tell me your story. And so many of those stories went something like maybe grown up in and around the church, but God really captured my heart late in high school. Or uh, the turn happened for me because of a roommate in college or I made a mess of things my 20s and 30s, and God was more faithful and bigger than even my mess. And that's when things turned for me. And then what would come alongside of that, what would just implicitly follow that kind of testimony are the hopes that we all have for the homes that we're creating. Whether that's kids that are, that are old, whether that's uh, young families, whether that's uh, families that are just starting, or even those who just are creating a home with, with roommates, that what we're saying is, is that I, uh, I want there to be a gospel centrality in my home, in my life, in my family that wasn't modeled for me growing up, that wasn't present in my home growing up. Like the way I remember uh, one of our, our brothers put it is, I just want my name, I want my last name to mean something 40 years from now that's different than what it's meant for the last 40 years. And so in that, that is a good and right and robust desire. And it, it does not just happen naturally. It doesn't. So we're here. That's who we are. But you don't, you don't wake up 15 years from now and found that you stumbled into a home that treasures Christ. You don't. The drift is not towards Jesus. The drift is towards compromise. The drift is towards complacency. And so what I know to be true is that if we are going to, in whatever season of life and whatever the makeup of the home is, if we're going to arrive at that place... 
of, of sowing in these gospel seeds in our homes, whatever they look like, it's going to be because there's an intentionality on behalf of all of us. There's an intentionality, especially as it comes to parenting. And that intentionality is present among the parents and among the church to which those parents belong. And it has to come out from, at times, from the preacher predominantly preaching at the church where mom and dad belong. And so that's, that's bringing us to today. And what I know we don't want is the testimony I heard from a man the other day who said, in my home, food knew the table, clothes knew my closet, money knew the college fund, my family even knew the pews at church, but mom and dad didn't know my heart. And what he went on to describe is what he meant by that is that he was not engaged in the home with the truth of the gospel, not engaged in the home with the truth of Jesus. That's the press. And even in saying it, I, I'm already at my second press, and it's this, that there is a unique pressure, weight, guilt, shame attached to motherhood. There is. As a pastor, as a friend, as a brother, as a husband, I just see that and hear that and observe that and believe that to not speak to it with the truth of the gospel and to speak to it with God's word, to not do that is to fail to love and lead well. So like that thing, that fear, that like all-encompassing fear, I'm going to ruin my kids, that feeling of I am uh, not enough for them, that feeling of, oh gosh, I'm too much for them, it's real. And it comes out in all kinds of ways. And it's taking place in a culture that exacerbates it because it's a culture of pretend perfection. And what's so often lost is how simple, look, what's so often lost is actually how simple the call on the mom's life is. Not easy, but simple. And the call offers a standard that's just so much kinder than the one we naturally live under. I'm getting ahead of myself a bit. So that's why we're in Proverbs 1. That's why we're taking the day to do what we're doing. Moms, let me say it this way. You stand at the fork in the road in the life of your children, and you point them to Jesus by teaching them about Jesus. That's where we're going. It'll take us a long time to get there. Look at verse 7. It says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. This is Solomon writing the book of Proverbs. You could take almost everything that follows this and dump it into one of two categories, the life of fearing the Lord and the life of foolishness. And that's what he's laying out. There's two ways to live. You can live a life that fears God, or you can live a life that's marked by foolishness. So let's define both of those. Fear of the Lord is um, familiar church language. It's just so often misunderstood because of the word fear. There's a connotation to that for us. And so it's like, okay, am I supposed to be scared of God? And if I am, then how does that make me wise, right? Let me offer a definition I found that was super helpful. There's a German theologian. He defined it this way. I would tell you his name, but I can't pronounce it. So uh, our German brother, he says... <laughs> to fear the Lord is to orient one's whole life, thought, desire, action, speech, and measure of value around the designs 
and orders of the God who created the world and is redeeming his people from their corruption in sin. Let me put it another way. Fearing the Lord means your life is centered around God. The life that fears the Lord is a God-centered life. God um, being the one who drives the definitions of life and the values of life. And God is the lens through which I see the world. Tim Keller, who's always so helpful, he put it this way. The fear of the Lord is to life what the alphabet is to reading. Before you pick up a book, you have to learn the ABCs. Without them, your reading will be pointless unless there's lots of pictures, right? The fear of the Lord, the God-centered orientation, without that, life is aimless and it's painful. With the fear of the Lord, my world comes into focus. It's a a God-centered life is the lens through which I judge and evaluate everything in life. And so uh, here's what it's not. It is not God as an addition to my life. And maybe I only have to say it in this kind of culture, in this kind of climate. The lens through which I see the world is not a political lens. And then I sprinkle God on top. It's not a humanistic lens. And then I sprinkle God on top. It's not a Western, affluent, consumeristic lens. And then I sprinkle God on top. Like God is not an additive. He's the center of my life. And from that center, he pours out of every part of my life and owns every part of my life. Another way to say it is he's not a buffet. He's an entree. And he is the entree that is rich enough for all of life and for every appetite in life. How do I know the difference between the two? God as an addition, like God just sprinkled on top to my life. It means that I read the Bible, I see who he is, I see how he defines life, and I try to adjust him to the life I'm already living. That's foolishness. The fear of the Lord says God at the center means I read my Bible, I see how he defines life, I see who he is, and I adjust to him. By the way, he can't change as much as we might try. And between the two of us, I'm the only one who needs to. And so God at the center, it spills into every part. And there is no sphere of life that doesn't apply to God at the center of my uh, job and my values and my marriage and my relationships and the way I spend my money and the way that I, 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 I handle my desires. He sets the rules. He gives the definitions. And so here's the life. I love this. Here's the life that fearing the Lord produces. I'm getting the rest of this from the rest of the book of Proverbs. And it just scratches the surface of what Proverbs has to say about this life. The one who fears the Lord has favor in the sight of God and man. Wisdom that is better than gold and more precious than jewels. Honesty, marital fidelity, peaceful words, hatred of evil, prolonged life, faithful friend, faithful neighbor, a gentle tongue and a glad heart. That's rich. That life is full. The opposite of that life is the fool. It's the other category. It's the other path. And the fool's described a number of ways throughout the book. It's not someone who lacks intelligence, right? A fool is someone who has someone else, namely themselves, at the center of their life. Life is oriented around me. That's why the fool, like I said in verse seven, that's why the fool despises wisdom and instruction. Why does he despise it? He doesn't think he needs it. I've got it. I don't need to learn anything. I don't need to know anything. I'm at the center. I'm defining my own life. I'm actualizing my own self, right? And so uh, let me give you a definition. The fool is someone who is so habitually out of touch with reality 
the reality that they are not God and that life is not about them. So out of touch with that reality that they make life miserable for themselves and everyone around them. And here's the tragic picture of the fool through the rest of the book of Proverbs. The fool's naive, gullible. Their foundation is so shaky that they can be led anywhere by anyone because they don't know what's right and wrong. A fool is habitually cynical, trusts nothing except their ability to trust nothing, which makes them mock everything and sneer at everything and question everything. The fool's lazy, what Proverbs calls a sluggard. A fool mocks sin, delights in evil, uses harsh words, is easily angered, easily seduced. A fool is proud. A fool hates knowledge. A fool refuses to listen to anybody but themselves. It's why chapter 26 says, a fool returns to his folly like a dog returns to his vomit. Everyone's favorite Bible verse. Happy Mother's Day. And here's what I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say that um, we are more foolish now than in past times in history, like foolishness has been bound up in the human heart since the garden. But what I would say is that uh, there are more resources now to display and celebrate foolishness than there ever has been. Like, let's go back to the the description, mocking sin, delighting in evil, uh, using harsh words, easily angered. You have only to open a dozen apps on your phone right now to see that right now, right? It's foolishness. That's what it is. And it's not the case. This is somewhat confusing. It's not the case that the the life of the fool has nothing positive in it. It's not the case that you could look at two lives and look at the shell of two lives and say, oh, that's a fool because he has no blessing. He has no prosperity. And the person who's thriving, that must be the one that fears the Lord. A fool can be rich. A fool can be smart. A fool can be gifted and have a large social circle. But if the orientation is around self, none of it matters. Gifts are squandered by the fool. Intelligence turns to pride in a foolish heart. Money is used to hurt people, not help people by the fool. And that, that's going to extract out really quickly what we really value. In other words, if you have the choice between being a rich and a fool or poor and fearing the Lord, which one? Bless you. Which one? So Proverbs is going to answer it for us this way in in chapter 15, 16, 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. I love this. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. How true is that? If you get God and in getting God, you get the love, even if it doesn't come with anything else, how much better is that? Like just ask anyone in the room who grew up in a home with a lot of stuff and not a lot of love and ask them which one they would have rather had. It's true. So there's two paths, the life that fears the Lord, the life of the fool, they're going opposite directions. Jesus is gonna put it this way through story. The wise man builds his house on the rock and that's God. The foolish man builds his house on the sand and that's the sand of a self-centered life. And so those are the two options. And what he's gonna say very next in verse eight, he says, hear my son, your father's instruction, forsake not your mother's teaching. There's a fork in the road and life goes towards foolishness or life goes towards the fear of the Lord. And who's standing there? there. Mom and dad standing at the fork in the road. And and, and what's coming out of their life is teaching, 
and instruction and encouragement, and they are championing their children and saying, child, fear God. Fear, go the way of life that is deep and true and abundant and full. So there's two truths that we can draw out of that. One is this, uh, fearing the Lord has to be taught. You know what doesn't have to be taught? Foolishness. Proverbs 22.15 says it this way, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. I, I know children are sweet. I know they're precious. I know they're wonderful. There's also a foolishness in them that no one had to teach them. We've all walked in on a child who has made a mess and they look at you and they, they offer an explanation. I thought it was a good idea, right? Uh, or even, how about this? Um, how long did it take for them to start believing that they know better than you? Weren't you surprised by how quickly that happened? Our five-year-old's arguing with her mom a couple months ago about what to wear to church. That started sooner than I thought. Um, so she wanted one outfit and mom said, no, you have to wear this one. And so they go back and forth. She's tired of the argument. So she runs out to me to tell on mom, which is fascinating. It's just, I don't, it's amazing. Uh, and so she tells me, you know, I want to wear this and mom wants me to wear this. And I just stopped her, interrupted her and said, look, you need to obey your mom. She knows best. And her eyes got cold. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, no, she doesn't. I know best. I wear the coolest clothes. <laughs> and then she turns and walks out the door and gets in the car and all she's wearing is a shirt, which made me not fear the Lord, made me fear her <laughs> and start <laughs> praying a lot. But what is that? That's foolishness. That's folly. And um, the human response, that I know best response is that response of foolishness. No one has to be taught to think like that. And at five, it's kind of cute, but it's not a joke. I know best at 15 is really scary. I know best at 25 is really dangerous. I know best at 35 is a full-grown fool who is making life miserable for herself and those around her. What we are not born doing is fearing the Lord. That has to be instilled. That has to be modeled and instructed. And if that's true, then the question is, who's the teacher? Mom and dad. Mom and dad stand at the fork in the road. Now, I do want to say this. Uh, Proverbs here is only speaking to like biological parents, but what we know to be true from the counsel of scripture and just from our experience, that this also applies to um, a very precious role that many of you play, and that is the role of spiritual mother. We have so many spiritual mothers here who uh, do not have their own biological children, but they have seen other children in their lives and in love, they have made them their own and they are playing this role in their life. My mom, uh, there was a season of her life where her aunt was her spiritual mother and it changed her life. So I know you're out there and I want to acknowledge you that this means you as well. Proverbs is gonna move on to unpack it in Proverbs 6, 20 through 23. It says, my son, keep your father's commandment Forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. Walk, lie down, and wake. It's all of life. It's all of life. So what they're saying is, is this is a proverbial way to say the guidance and teaching of mom and dad will prepare a child. And so again, there's a truth under that truth that we have to see. Mom, you are are the most important teaching 
instructing, counseling, guiding voice in your child's life alongside dad. And, and maybe some in the room just didn't expect the second half of verse 8. Maybe we've been taught to expect uh, children, honor your da- listen to your dad's teaching, and mom will take care of everything else, right? Or uh, even, hey, uh, the church will handle the spiritual stuff. Dad will take care of the financial stuff. And mom, you just kind of take care of all the physical needs, maybe the emotional needs. And that's not it. That's not true. It's not what you see. What you see is it's dad and mom together that grab the hand of the child and lead them. And mom, you don't play a less valuable, you don't play a less important role in that. You don't. Solomon tees up the conversation of the entire book and then where he says, where you, what he says is where you begin to learn this is in the home from your mom. Now, the swirl just begins, right? Or maybe it started 20 minutes ago. And what I mean by the swirl is, is like that internal conversation of, oh no, am I doing that right? And how do I know? And what does it look like? It's like uh, when the article pops up on your feed and it says five things every parent must do. And you click on it and you read it. Not to read it, but to be judged by it, right? It's like a report card. Just me. Okay, fine. Okay, just me. (laughs) Instead of the how, I don't want to do the how. Instead of the how, I want to go a little bit deeper. And I want to give you a person and a word. The person is not going to surprise you. It's Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. The fear of the Lord is seen throughout Proverbs, but we're on this side of the cross. We're on this side of the resurrection. We're on this side of the ascension. And so when we are looking for what the fear of the Lord looks like, we don't first go to Proverbs. We first go to Jesus. Jesus is the personification of the life that fears the Lord. Uh, What was written down to be read by those in the Old Testament uh, and to be taught, we get to see and experience in a person. Like if you go back to the description of the fear of the Lord, honest peaceful, gentle, good friend, good neighbor, glad heart. Who is that? That's Jesus. It is in him more than it's been in anyone else in human history. And so Romans 8 says this, that we were saved to be conformed to the image of his son. The point of Christianity is saved by Jesus to look like Jesus. It's for all of us. And that there is no greater hope for our children than that, saved by him to look like him. So if the question's like, hey, where do I start? I don't have Proverbs memorized. They, those kids, they ask me questions every day I don't know the answer to. I get it. Start with Jesus. And then you know what you do? You stay with Jesus. Foolishness is not just something to be taught out of your children. It's something they have to be saved from, something we all have to be saved from. Like what is not true is you can't just follow the book of Proverbs and all of a sudden you will achieve the life of fearing the Lord without the intervention of the Holy Spirit saving you from yourself. The heart is bound up in foolishness and we don't need better teaching. We need new hearts to be able to live that life. Jesus saves in that way. That's the greatest prayer for any child is God, would you save them and would you save them young to teach them to fear the Lord by teaching them to look like you. And so what that means is that the Jesus conversation is not one that you have once. It is one that you are always having. And not just when they get in trouble or they'll think that God is a cosmic principle. And not just on holidays or they think that God is a cosmic cartoon character. As you go, Jesus, uh, his name on your lips, his life talked about, his love experienced. It's you standing at the fork in the road and saying, child, choose him. 
child, he's good, he's gracious, he's forgiving, and finding ways to weave that into the day. Okay, well, how do I know if I'm doing that well? Jesus is the person, here's the word. The word is faithful. And what I want to contend for together is that that is just a kind standard that God gives us. That faithfulness is a more freeing, a burden-lifting standard that you're not going to find anywhere else. Here's why it's important. You cannot control the decisions anyone in your life makes, much less your children. And the weight of their future is not all on you. The responsibility for their faults is not all on you. Whether they choose the path of life or not is just not all on you. Do you see Solomon? What's he doing? He's pleading. Listen to mom. Listen to dad. Why does he have to do that? Because it's a choice. Because godly parenting does not guarantee godly children. God doesn't have grandchildren. No one gets in on the faith of mom and dad. For every person, it's a choice. And it's so important to say that because there are so many in the room who have older children, who don't fear the Lord, who don't follow Jesus, and it is so easy to spend so much time beating yourself up over what you did or did not do. And the reality is this, where they are now is just not all on you. Maybe there's space to be honest. Maybe there's space to be humble. Maybe there's space to humbly own what you need to own. But know this, God never asked you to be perfect, just to be faithful. The son in Luke 15 had a great dad, and he left home. More than that, we all as children have a perfect heavenly father, and our rebellion is so steep that we needed our brother Jesus to give his life for us to bring us back home. Do not carry, friends, what God has not placed in your hands. Faithfulness to point them to Jesus. Let me spell this out. Faithfulness is the standard. What I mean by that is faithfulness in the ordinary and faithfulness in your failure. Faithfulness in the ordinary, um, there is this obscurity and there is an ordinariness to being a mom, right? Meeting needs, correction, cleaning, laundry, lunches, correction, bathing, diapers, homework, correction, uh, driving, drop-offs, college prep, play dates, correction, correction. Just go to your room and come out when you're 30, right? And there's just a lot of truth to that, just that reality that, that comes out. But that reality is playing out at a specific time in history where value is found and only found in being seen and celebrated by hordes and hordes of people. That's the standard. And so if that's the standard and I'm here in the ordinary, it is like this thought creeps in. All of that. Does it even matter? Like everyone else's life seems so full and exciting. Is what I'm doing, is it even important? Am I getting lost in all of it? Like do you ever feel like everyone else, maybe even other moms, are doing something of a significance around people of significance and it's seen and it's celebrated in your life and your value is just lost in the mediocrity of motherhood, buried under a hundred ordinary tasks that the world will never see and that you will never be recognized for. Does it ever feel like that? Hear me, ordinary and insignificant are not the same thing. That's a lie. Like the ordinary has meaning. John Piper's preaching to his church on Mother's Day back in the late 90s, and he said this to the moms on the topic. God has a way of nullifying the greatness of the great and exalting the lowliness of the lowly. 
That's true throughout Scripture, throughout the history of what God's doing. Your faithfulness in the ordinary, it not only is seen by God, it represents God in your home. God does ordinary work every day that keeps us all alive. God parents his creation. He makes the sun rise. He makes the earth spin. He makes the flowers grow. And the things you do in your home reflect a spiritual reality that matters even more than that. Every day you have the privilege. Every day you have the privilege. Maybe not of looking and being extraordinary like the world defines it, but the privilege to infuse the ordinary with the truths of an extraordinary God. And it matters. The prayer before the meal telling them God cares about their hurts, sending them the encouragement as they're grown and they're out of the house and they're living their own ordinary life and you encourage them in the middle of that, pausing before you leave the room at night, even though bedtime started four hours ago and pausing to leave the room to say, you know what, I'm leaving, but Jesus isn't. He's with you always, even to the end of the age. The feeling of insignificance, that feeling of being unseen is combated, my friends, by the truth that the eyes that matter most See your faithfulness. Okay, but I feel so overwhelmed. Like I just feel so inadequate all the time. Look, it's because it's overwhelming. It's because it's overwhelming. I've told you guys this. Carrie will leave me at home with all three and everything starts falling apart. And then she finally comes home and I'm like, woman, where were you? And she's like, Jamie, it was 10 minutes. And I'm like, you said five. You said it would only be five minutes. It's overwhelming. And I get that, but I wonder, and I've just wondered so much more recently that if some of that overwhelmed that we talk about so much is actually us being overwhelmed by a standard that God doesn't hold us accountable to. Hannah Anderson in her book, Humble Roots, I couldn't recommend it more highly. She talks about how culture honors and encourages us to push past our human limits, to ignore them, and it's, and it's hurting us. She says this about the home. No longer is it enough to have a good marriage. You must have the best one. No longer is it enough to feed, clothe, and protect your children from general harm. You must dress them on trend, preferably in clothes handmade from vintage fabric or knit from organic wool. Make all their food from scratch, locally sourced, of course, and teach them to read by age four. And woe to you if you make the wrong choice about whether to send them to private or public school. Future generations depend on your decision, and we will not be held responsible if and when you make the wrong one. Whose voice is that? Look, there is an overwhelmed and inadequate that is a byproduct of living under what I, what I just call a should. And it's not the should of faithfulness. It's the, they should look a certain way when they leave the house. They should have uh, certain things. They should have access and be accepted into certain groups. Uh, and I should drive them all these places and they should be involved in all the right things. And I should be the kind of mom that can do it all. And if I can just push back my own limits and I can push back my own self-care, I should be able to make it happen. And I just don't think that's the should that you're going to be held accountable for. And often what gets lost in that unrealistic high bar expectation is the simple godly truth that they should learn about and look like Jesus and you're the teacher. Now, I'm not telling you that so that you would stack that should on top of all the other shoulds. I am saying that you have the freedom to let go of a lot of the others if you need to, and know this, that you have not failed in doing so. You've not failed in doing so. Like all those other shoulds are optional, but faithfulness to give them Jesus is just not up for grabs. 
So like there are important decisions to make, lean into wisdom, lean into community, but hold the non-essentials loosely and hold that essential so tightly and enjoy, hear this, and enjoy the freedom that comes with not being responsible for being the kind of mom that all the voices say you should be and enjoy the rest that comes at night from laying down and knowing where I was faithful. Even in the ordinary, God saw and where I lacked, there's grace for today and for tomorrow. Faithfulness is a kinder standard and then faithfulness in failure. And what I mean by this is two things, both the failure that you can't control and the failure that you are responsible for. So uh, there is pain and dysfunction in a broken world. And as much as we want to protect our children from it, we can't, but we try. And so there are ways that they'll be hurt and the instinct is to protect, right? The metaphor now is not a helicopter mom anymore. The metaphor is lawnmower mom. It means I go in front of my kids and I cut down anything that could slow them down and anything that could hurt them and anything that could cause pain. And I get it. I get the impulse. It's just not life. It's, not, it's just not how the world works. It's not how it works for you. And I'm not talking about the biblical call to protect. The other day, my kids uh, asked if they could walk by themselves to Finn and Winnie's house. They live like two miles away. My kids are eight and five. Uh, and to get there, you have to cross independence and people drive crazy on independence. And I'm like, you wanna go by yourself? I'm like, yeah, we'll be fine. I'm like, no, there's cars. I'm like, no, dad, we'll be careful. I'm like, okay, what about this? Our neighborhood is crawling with coyotes. Do you think about that? right? Didn't you hear? And they're like, no, they'll be fine. I'm like, no, no, listen, what you need to know is dad is more scared of them than they are of him. It's just not going to happen, right? And there's that biblical call to protect and to be wise, but their life, no matter what, it just won't be pain-free. And that's not the aim. Like more than, than they need a life free of pain and suffering, they need to know a God big enough to sustain them in the pain and get them through suffering. And you, can, you cannot protect them from all pain, but you can show them that God. You know who's writing this proverb is a guy named Solomon. Uh, do you know his mom and dad? His dad is a guy named uh, David, the king, and his mom was a woman named Bathsheba. One of the most dysfunctional stories in all the Bible. David uh, used his power to sleep with Solomon's mom while she was married to another man. And because she has to obey the king, that interaction was at best non-consensual. And so uh, he um, brings her into his bedroom. She gets pregnant. David has her husband killed. David takes her as a wife and then they lose the baby. Solomon's born into that, born into that kind of family drama. And don't think that just because they're in the Bible, they were protected from the kinds of problems that ensue in a situation like that. Like uh, David was repentant, but it takes books of the Bible to fully unpack the consequences of his sin. Solomon is born into that, born into a home riddled with dad's failures that mom couldn't protect him from. She couldn't. They were a reality. You think they never fought? You think that never came up over and over again in front of him? Listen to this. David dies. Solomon becomes king in 1 Kings 2.19. This is his first act as king. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother and she sat on his right. His first recorded act as king is to bow to his mom, to honor his mom. And then 
He brings a chair and he puts it on his right. Who sits on the right? The one who advises the king. He honors her in bowing her. In setting her at his right, he says this, I will not forsake my mother's teaching. She's here. She has something to say to me. And not only do I want to hear it, I need to hear it. Do you see it? Bathsheba, this woman, acquainted with pain that she could not control, acquainted with pain she couldn't protect her kids from, acquainted with pain that she was not responsible for, she stood in the middle of someone else's failure and was a faithful mom to her son, and he grew up to bless her for it and to honor her in it. And I know who's here. And I know that you didn't want the divorce. He chose that. I know that you didn't want the illness. I know that there's pain in your life and in the life of your children. I know adoption has brought challenges to you and your family that the rest of the room can't even begin to understand. I know you're all alone in it. I know that you got them ready this morning by yourself and you did the same thing last Sunday and you'll do the same thing next Sunday. Would you hear me, my sister? You are doing a good job. You're doing a good job. God is not asking you to fix what you can't control. Just be faithful. Give them Jesus. And maybe they don't grow up and bow to you one day. Maybe they don't grow up and grab a chair and put it next to their throne one day. But right now, my friend, right now, the eternal forever King Jesus sees you and delights in your faithfulness. It matters. Faithfulness in the failure you can't control. And then I want to be careful Faithful in failure that you're responsible for. You have and you will sin against your children. And there's times when frustration comes out in teaching them to fear you and not fear God. There's times when they are being taught to orient around your needs, maybe even just trained subtly to know the tone of voice from you that says, I just don't have time for you right now. And so maybe those are big moments and maybe those are small moments, but those are true for all of us because our hearts are broken with sin. Now, look, let me come over here. Listen, uh, husband, if you're in here and you have this ebb towards criticism, I am, not, I am not giving you ammunition for your criticism. Your wife has an accuser. It's not God and it's not supposed to be you. Your voice is one of encouragement and leadership in her life. She has an accuser History does not end well for him. Don't be on the wrong side, brothers. But there are times in which you will sin against your kids and have sinned against your kids. And I don't know the details of how that will come out. I don't. But the default response is to try and protect them from seeing sin come out of us towards them and to try to protect them by either ignoring it or excusing it. And in the life of your children, that does not help them deal with your failures. It makes your failures unsafe to talk about. And they have to go somewhere else for that. Would you initiate with your children around sin in your own life? My mom went through a really dark season of her life over a large portion of my childhood. And her uh, circumstances were just impossible. Four young kids, her youngest, a special needs child who, who needed constant care. Her, her husband, uh, an underpaid, overextended pastor who took side jobs, making him away from the home even more. And so her life was just impossible. And in that, the stress of that came out in her life at times in some really troubling, really dysfunctional ways and it hurt our home and it hurt me. And much of that is her story to tell, not mine. 
Ours overlap and intersect in ways. But I want you to know what I want to share with you is the part I remember most from all of that. I remember opening her door to check on her one day after she had a hard day. And I was just like a kid. And I opened her door to check on her and I can see it. I can see their room. I opened the door and they had this gross wallpaper all over their room. And then they had a bench at the end of their bed and there was my mom on her knees, Bible open, face in the Psalms. And I saw her struggling and I saw her um, spending time even in her struggle with a savior who's gentle and eager to lift up her head. And then here's the part that just sticks out so much is from that time that she spent with Jesus, that would come out in what I remember most. She would come to me into my room and in one hand she would hold my hand and in the other hand she would hold her Bible and then she would speak the words of God over my life and it would come out of her mouth as apologies for her sin. It would come out of her mouth as she apologized for her failures, not excusing them, not ignoring them, owning them because she's not defined by them because of Jesus. And the effect that that has had on my life at 31 years old, the effect that that has on my life is those memories now are not painful memories, they're precious. Like whatever the sin tried to take, her faithfulness restored. Would you do that? Would you make a practice of doing that? Would you show them that you fear God by grabbing their hand, holding your Bible, owning your mistakes to them, not in a despairing way? It doesn't mean you're not doing a good job. You're being faithful. But then, but then they'll know I'm imperfect and then they'll know that I've hurt them. And won't that just cause even more problems? Look, it's so much more freeing owning that than pretending they don't already see and it's not already there. They need you to be faithful, mom. And what that faithfulness means, part of that is showing them even in your failure that you have a kind, perfect, forgiving savior and so do they. I have said it before. I'll say it again as long as you'll let me. Your kids don't need you to be Jesus. They need you to need him. They need you to need him. Because they need him and they can't relate to watching you try and be him. But they will be served well and set free by watching you need him. And all of that, you know what that is? Is That's you standing at the fork in the road and saying, child, it's Jesus. Life is in Jesus. It's about, would you follow him and trust him? And he's kind and he's gracious. And you're faithful just in that ordinary and faithful in even the failure. And in doing so. God is pleased and he sees and it matters. It matters. Father, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for your kindness. You know, you know my prayer, God. You know it. You know what I prayed on the way here. You know what I prayed in between the 9 and the 11, 15. Would you, would you just do the kind of, of work that I'm incapable of doing? Like there's such a, a, a risk, such a large margin that it comes out as guilt, that it comes out as shame, that it comes out as regret. And that's not what you have. It's not what you have for the moms in this room. You're not here offering and I told you so to anybody. the message you have from your word is not do better, try harder, be more. 
It's a person and a word. It's Jesus who's gentle and beautiful. And it's a faithfulness that's a standard that makes room for our failures. Faithfulness that's a standard that allows us to be broken still. So would you minister? Spirit, would you just uphold? Would you just, would you just drive out the fear with hope? Would you drive out the shame with love? Would you, would you uh, where there is a good and right and faithful need for a reprioritization in the home, where there is a good and right and honest need to make what is already at the center reflected in the center of our lives and actions. Would you guide us and lead us, not from guilt, not from fear, but that we'd be invited, that we'd be drawn. Like we talked about last week, that you don't drive us to you, you draw us to you. We ask all of that in Jesus' name, amen.